The Evolve Network is now live at evolvenetwork.tv. Subscribe for meal plans, recipes, cooking shows, and our very own The Magic Pill and The Magic Plant, as well as access to my favorite documentaries. The Evolve Network is also home to our full library of podcasts, with new release podcasts airing first and in full on the channel. You can also watch selected vodcasts in a video format. Meanwhile, enjoy this highlight of our podcast and head over to evolvenetwork.tv for the full Evolve podcast experience. The Evolve with Pete Evans podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being as well as expanded consciousness. I love exploring the topics that are not traditionally taught at school and take a deep dive into them with my special guests. I invite you to sit back and come along for the ride with an open mind and heart and please share with your family and friends as these podcasts may just be the seed from which many things will flourish from. Cheers. We've been using Waters Co. water filters for the last 10 years and I wholeheartedly trust my family's health with them. Waters Co. established 1977 have personal and domestic water filters which turns your ordinary tap water into great tasting alkaline ionized mineral water which removes up to 99.9% of fluoride, heavy metals, chemicals and bacteria so you can love your tap water again. The Bio 1000 is the latest edition of the BMP 1000 model and the culmination of over 40 years of experience and research into water filtration by some of the world's leading scientists. Waters Co. was first to market with natural gravity-fed systems, creating alkaline water way back in 1984, and have continued to lead the market in research and development, setting the benchmark for all other brands to follow. Please go to my webpage, PeteEvans.com, to learn more and to receive your special discount from my link on the products page. You're going to love it. Robert, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. How are you, brother? I'm good, man. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. What I found fascinating is it's only been about a year or so since I first discovered Bitcoin and went down the rabbit hole. And a very dear friend of mine, Alex, who I've conducted 12 interviews with about Bitcoin, uh, introduced the two of us. And it was fascinating because it was actually my brother who sent me uh, the interview that you did recently. Mm-hmm. And I think it was with uh, Tim, I think his name is, or Tom. Apologies if I got that wrong. Oh, Tom, Tom Bill, you. That's it. That's correct. And yeah. what I found fascinating about your two-hour interview was that you basically summed it up, what Bitcoin is, in that two hours in a very easily digestible way. Um, and it really got me thinking about how you discovered it. And, and I'd love to be able to start off this conversation by number one, saying thank you for delivering such you're, a, you're quite welcome. Has such a, a beautiful, concise understanding of what Bitcoin is and, and your relationship to it with Tom. And interestingly enough, this week I, I shared a meme. It was quite funny. Uh, I think it was um, Sigmund Freud with a rabbit basically saying, so Mr. Rabbit, tell me how far or how deep these rabbit holes go. And and I wanted to understand what it was like for you when you first discovered 
Bitcoin and that rabbit hole and how possibly hesitant you were or, yeah, take us on the journey of you discovering Bitcoin and going down that rabbit hole or rabbit holes, if there is plural. Yeah, I would say that the Bitcoin rabbit hole has become almost proverbial at this point. Everyone that gets into Bitcoin experiences this. Um, it shatters your worldview, frankly. It, it, everything you think you know or you've taken for granted uh, about, you know, specifically socioeconomic reality, but a, if you get deep enough, reality more generally, perhaps. Um, it calls everything into question. And I can tell you that I've been doing this five years full time, like really just thinking about Bitcoin. Re and it's not that people get a little bit confused here. They think, how can you just think about Bitcoin for five years? But it's not that. It's these fundamental questions that you are forced to ask yourself. Uh, one of which is the namesake of my show, like what is money? Um, but that leads into other branches of the rabbit hole, like what is value, what is government, what is philosophy, what is property, what is exchange, what is accountability? Like it just really takes you into, I don't know, a, another dimension of looking at the world. It's a meta level understanding. In particular to the question, what is money? It's like, we think through money all the time, just like we think through language, right? You, you, your most of your thoughts are very likely, if you are alive in 2021, they are composed of words. You know, we use this psychotechnology called literacy almost without knowing it. It's just, it's so second nature. We don't even think about it. And the same is true of money, right? We think in money all the time. We're making plans, we're negotiating, we're calculating, we're building a business, we're consuming, we're traveling, whatever. But very rarely do we stop to take off the glasses and look at them and be like, what are, I'm thinking through this thing. I'm viewing the world through this perceptual apparatus called money. It's a language of value, if you will. But what the hell is it? Like how often do people actually stop and do that um, and in my opinion, it's very, uh, rare, too rare. So my journey into Bitcoin, um, a little interesting, I guess, before Bitcoin even emerged. So this is like 2004, 2005. I'll skip over some background. I'd always just been a very curious kid. So it was always I've been reading a lot since I was basically when I picked it up around the age of 11, sort of reading a lot. But around 2005, I am 19 years old. So I'm a young man, but I'm going down the central banking rabbit hole. Um, in particular, G. Edward Griffin's work, uh, The Creature from Jekyll Island. So at this point in my life, my curiosity had taken me into central banking, like trying to understand what it was. And I came to the conclusion, more or less, that it was the, the black heart of modern economies. It's the problem with almost everything in the world. Um, not to, I mean, I don't want to say almost everything, but a lot. If you're just focused on socioeconomics, it's basically the problem with everything in socioeconomics. 
Um, and I'll never forget arriving at that conclusion, telling friends and family, I even bought them an abridged version of The Creature from Jekyll Island, this book called Dishonest Money, and I gave it out to them. And, um, you know, some people read it and they were like, you know, thank you. This is interesting. It's, you know, good knowledge. We're like, what, what the hell am I supposed to do about this? And I just had this feeling of helplessness, I guess. So it's like, I don't know. I thought we could just see the truth for what it is and it would make the world better somehow, but it wasn't enough. You know, knowledge was not enough in this case. Um, I still went on about my life, you know, earning dollars, using dollars, you know, there's no alternative, right? We had no alternative before Bitcoin. And so fast forward to 2014, um, I was on vacation in Costa Rica with my girlfriend at the time and another couple. And the, the boyfriend and the couple was a, he is still actually a uh, private wealth manager at Wells Fargo Bank. So he handles uh, investments for high net worth individuals, essentially. And we were having an argument that his position was that cryptocurrencies would 100% unequivocally and totally fail and not exist and go away. But again, this is 2014. And my position at the time was they were 100% going to succeed in some fashion. But at this time, I had not gone far enough down the rabbit hole myself to understand that Bitcoin was the thing. I thought that Bitcoin was like the Netscape of cryptocurrency. You know, one of these silly analogies where people think it's version one and it'll get disrupted and then we'll find the thing that is the thing. I just hadn't done the deep dive. And so I kick myself still to this day about that because I, you know, I bought some Bitcoin in 14, sold it, made a little bit of dollar profit and thought I was a genius and moved on with my life. Um, but had I taken it seriously at that time, uh, <laughs> I would be uh, stupendously wealthy. So <laughs> uh, I say that to say that we all think we're late. None of us have enough Bitcoin. Um, which is a good reminder for later, but I, so I didn't get into it in 14, but it was later actually, strangely enough in 2016, hearing about the concept of smart contracts through Ethereum's marketing. So Ethereum markets itself as a smart contract platform. Um, I didn't know what a smart contract was. So I was studying this space. And when I found Nick Zabo's work on smart contracts, this was written in the late 90s and he described, he uses the vending machine as an analogy of a smart contract, which I would just recommend people go out and read it for themselves. It's very important foundational work to understanding the space. My light bulb moment was, holy cow, the entire finance industry is a vending machine, basically. And we use this vending machine currently, which is basically an intermediate layer connecting buyers and sellers of capital, buyers, sellers, borrowers, we populate this vending machine with human beings today because we don't have the technology um, to do it otherwise. But distributed consensus technology was essentially the foundational layer to provide that software. So the I saw the entire finance industry being eaten in this wave of innovation that we called crypto. And that's when I was like, light bulb went off. I'm going hard into this. So I started investing heavily. Uh, and as I always say, where my money went, my mind followed. I actually think 
money is an extension of the mind. I think there's a feedback loop between money and mind, as we've alluded to earlier. And as I started to study crypto assets more deeply, uh, I was introduced to the Austrian School of Economics, which I think was my missing piece. It was the missing chink in my psychotechnological architecture to really understand the profundity of Bitcoin. Um, and I will credit the work of people like Safadina Moose, the Bitcoin Standard, Vijay Boyapati, uh, the bullish case for Bitcoin, the work of Nick Carter, um, the work of guys like Hasu describing Bitcoin as a social contract. Um, and then my real light bulb moment was, holy shit, Bitcoin is the most superior monetary technology that has ever ever existed effectively it's perfected the properties of money that people seek through their economic behavior through buying and selling we seek to obtain services um and i've made this point before but it's like it's it's more useful to think in terms of services than it is goods because the good itself doesn't actually matter it's what does that good render to you even the land like when you buy land it's not like i want this land because it's a piece of property it's like it's what you're going to do on it. How are you going to spend time on it? Does it have a pond? Are you going to go fishing? Like, are there mountains you're going to hike? It's all about services. You know, human action is service oriented, I guess you could say. And the properties of money, basically, which I learned through the Austrian school, and I've enumerated them countless times in many of my interviews. So I won't go into detail here, but people seek divisibility, durability, recognizability, portability, scarcity. And Bitcoin perfects those properties of money. So I view Bitcoin as something, I think the greatest innovation I will see in my lifetime. I think the internet in the long view will be viewed as a precursor to Bitcoin. And I think Bitcoin is disruptive to gold. And gold is historically the most important asset in human history. So you combine all of those things and you get these silly uh, little name, nicknames for Bitcoin, like the internet of money or digital gold. Um, one that I think is especially useful is the separation of money and state, right? It's the first money that cannot be monopolized by the state, which is very important. And um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. That was kind of high level cliff notes of my journey. <laughs> I love it. One of the things my, my wife and I discuss is how we create our own reality through our thoughts and through our actions. And collectively, we have gotten ourselves into this situation. If, if we go back to the start of the conversation where you started off by saying, you know, that basically the system that we have all agreed to, we have manifested that. And I was doing an interview the other day and, and somebody said, where do you think we're at in, in the case of the pandemic and everything? I said, I, I think we're at the start, to be honest with you. Until we start to think collectively in a different method. And, and part of my reasoning behind that is we seem to have a lot of systems that are based on deceit and lies and and maybe it doesn't need to be that nefarious but there's some pretty unstable systems that are out there such as the economy such as the government such as the health sector and the pharmaceuticals and so on and so on 
And what I find fascinating since I've discovered Bitcoin is how rapidly people are adopting it. So going back to the start, it's like if more and more people adopt into this, then by default, the reality is created by us all. I, I know that's probably pretty deep, but um, tell us your thoughts about that. Well, no, I, I agree completely, actually. Um, the mantra of the business that I started, my first business I started in this space, company's called Parallax Digital. And the mantra of that company was gain perspective, change reality. So, um, and I rooted that in the, I think it's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. You know, you cannot simultaneously determine a particle's trajectory and position. So the very act of observing a particle at a certain level changes it, changes its position or its trajectory. Like you, there's a trade-off, right? You get more certainty about one, but less certainty about the other and vice versa. So we are inextricably bound to the realities that we inhabit. We, we, I'm doing a series on this right now, actually. We wear these, again, in terms of wearing glasses and what we think, how we see the world, what technology we're thinking through. I think subject-object duality is wrong as well. It's one way to look at the world, but it's not the absolute truth. It's not there is a subjective you inside of here, an objective reality happening outside of you. There is a mutuality or a reciprocity between the two. And we know this at the quantum level. This isn't even an argument. This is proven science. This, it sounds like crazy mystical speculation and people are like, okay, you know, Mr. Whatever, but it's real. You know, it is very fundamental and real. So there's a deep importance of considering your perspective and how you're looking at the world to the actual manifestation of that world, right? How we actually choose to frame it um, has very significant impact on how it exists, how it manifests. And with the monetary system, you know, again, I, I just, I view money as one of those, money itself is interesting because it's kind of a cross, you know, we've, we've described something like literacy and numeracy, which would be a psychotechnology because it's non-corporeal, right? It's just, a, it's a informational linguistic standard that we share. It's a protocol, frankly. Whereas something like a, a more traditional technology, we would consider to be the shovel or the table or the computer, something physical that we can touch. But money is a, a hybrid, actually. Money's somewhere between the two because we think through money, but historically, Money has to be rooted into reality. It has to be energetically rooted to reality because it needs to reflect work, right? It needs to reflect value. Um, and so it, it has, it's like a bridge. It's a bridge between technologies and psychotechnologies um, or between wants and satisfactions of wants. You know, it's like, okay, we all want a lot, but it's like, what is actually available? what work has actually been done. That's what money represents. Money represents a call option on the stuff, right? So I think that we have in, in this fiat currency situation, it, it, 
it's interesting to look at because I don't know if it's deception or self-deception or a combination of the two, but it is definitely deceptive because we have, in the attempt to scale gold, right? We all know gold was money. Uh, essentially, it was the technology that best satisfied those five properties. But where gold had shortcomings in particular was portability. Gold is really hard to move across space. It's really expensive to secure and transact. It doesn't have a lot of velocity, right? It's hard to beam gold around the world. You can't really do it. So this was a real hindrance on a globalizing society. Your, your money doesn't move as fast as your economic demand uh, is moving, then you're inhibited, right? You're inhibited from wealth creation and trade and all these things. So humans being humans, right? We, we put our ingenuity to work. And we're like, okay, gold has become money as a result of this, this free market process um, that very importantly is a product of human action, but not product of human design. There was no panel or government that sat down and said, gold is officially money. Like that narrative is complete bullshit. It's individual market actors acting in their best interest across centuries settled on gold as being the right monetary technology for a number of reasons I've covered in my work. Um, it emerged on the free market. It was not decreed, right? This is it's bottom up, not top down. That's what made gold money. But the, and the decision to abstract gold into currency was in an effort to augment its shortcoming in terms of its portability. We needed gold to be faster. We needed it to transact globally so we could satisfy the, the demands for a globalizing economy. The problem that this, of course, introduced was now, okay, so the economics are driving us to centralize the custody of gold into warehouses, issue warehouse receipts. So these are actually just the, the origin of banknotes, right? The, each banknote was redeemable for one unit of gold. And then you could trade this paper, or even better, the electronic representation of this paper across the world at the speed of light. And it's as good as gold, because at any time I can take this paper to the bank or the warehouse and redeem the gold. So all of a sudden, we had the best of both worlds, right? We had a monetary technology that was rooted in the thermodynamics of work, right? It takes work to make gold. There's work that secures the scarcity of gold. We call this proof of work in Bitcoin. You can't just make it. You can't counterfeit it. But we also had a token that could transact very rapidly. We could move paper very quickly, could secure it very cheaply. It was very transactable. So we had gathered all of the, the necessary properties of money into one technology that was the gold-backed currency. But the problem this, of course, introduced is that we now, this institution we had created, this bank, the warehouse, which became the bank, which today we call the central bank, the largest custodians of gold in the world, they now have an opportunity to deceive their customers. All they have to do is print more paper than they actually have in, in gold. So they've got 100 ounces on deposit. They represent, in terms of paper, they have 200 ounces. And so long as not enough people try to redeem it at once, right? So long as they trust 
the custodian, so as long as they trust the central bank, then the scheme can go on. The scheme can go on and it can get higher and higher. This is, this is fractional reserve banking, right? But, but at its core, this is a fraudulent business enterprise because each slip, each banknote is a contract for gold, right? This contract says I can redeem this dollar for gold. When you start running a fractional reserve bank and you have twice as many contracts outstanding as you can satisfy, you are running a currency counterfeiting operation. That's by definition what it is. And, you know, we have created this entire intellectual edifice around central banking to try and defend and uh, make excuses for controlling the money supply. Like, oh, when times are bad, we need to print more money to help the economy. And like, it's all, again, it's deception. I don't know if it's, if it's, I'm, I'm confused on this topic, if it's nefarious, purposeful deception of like one group onto others, or if it's self-deception even, because, you know, as we know, as humans, if there's something we really want to do, something that's really in our interest, we will rationalize, we'll tell ourselves whatever story we need to tell ourselves to go and do the thing. And then we'll post Hawk rationalize too. We'll tell ourselves a different story about why we did it. And you know, anything to defend like our ego and satisfy our want. So I think perhaps fiat currency is a, a macrocosmic representation of that self-deception. That every time we get into an economic situation where the bill has come due, so to speak, it's very easy and enticing to just print money to pay that bill. Right. If you can do it, if you own, you know, like if you own a money printer in your home and you could just press a button and print money, like wouldn't you run that machine a lot? Wouldn't you? I mean, don't you think if you're being honest with yourself, there's some perhaps people, some moralist out there, like not me, I would never do it. And that would be false. I'm like, okay, maybe you're the one Mother Teresa out of a billion of us. But most of us, would run the, the money printing machine because it's a lot easier to press print than it is to go into the market, take risk, create value, hope that the market appreciates the value you've created and rewards you in profits, right? All of that to try and pay the bill or just press print. So I think central banking is this large systemic self-deception on humanity. That we have, we have actually, and this is biblical, right? You, sowing must occur before reaping. This is economic axiom. Production must precede consumption. You cannot consume what has not yet been produced. So why do we think we can produce more of this money that is just a call option on all this stuff? And it will solve any economic problem in the world whatsoever. I mean, the equivalent is looking at a blank slate of land and saying, I want to go and build a cabin on this land. But to solve this problem first, I'm just going to print a bunch of paper over here. Like all these green slips of paper will help me just by printing paper. Like instead of actually doing the work, right? Digging and cutting and nailing and planning, you think you could just print 
paper, green slips of paper that will somehow magically solve this problem. And it will magically solve the problem if you can deceive enough people into working for those green slips of paper. But it's an inherent deception, right? It's, it's a decoupling of representation from work, of the symbol from its referent. And that's what money is. Money is a symbol of the energy of work, right? It's, it's the value that has been created through inter, like multiple, multiple generations of human effort, right? We're all born into this luxury of like, oh, we have the Apple computer and the house and the electricity and the running water and the food and the logistics networks and the boats and the planes. Like we didn't make all this shit, right? We didn't figure all this out in our generation. We inherited all of this. And all of this we inherited by deferring consumption, saving, producing before consuming, creating a larger and larger stock of capital. Well, fiat currency says the reverse is now necessary. That we now need to keep stoking consumption and not worry about production. It is a de-civilizing, self-deceiving, frankly, ignorant force. Um, and it's used... It's used to transfer wealth from the many who depend on dollars to store their value to the few that can produce new dollars. And intentionality aside, it is a deception. I don't know if it's a self-deception or an outright deception or a combination, but it is 100% a deception. Mm. More and more people are waking up to this. It's interesting because the people that introduced me to cryptocurrency, they were talking, uh, they had been quite large players in the psychedelic realm. And my own experiences with psychedelics or entheogens is that you get to experience the absolute truth of reality, mm -hmm. of who you are. Because you mentioned before how the ego, <laughs> you know, you'll just press the, the money printer if you, if you had it in your house. Of course. But in exploring yeah. who you are and going deep, you get to see. I really hope you enjoyed the first half of this podcast. If you'd like to listen to the rest, please visit evolvenetwork.tv. That's evolvenetwork.tv. We'll see you there. The information, views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. And nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions, or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast. <laughs>